We're going to continue our Essential Word series, and uh, if you were here last Sunday night, you'll know we've jumped ahead into the New Testament again, and into the book of Acts. So what's in a name? Now I'm not going to start quoting any more Shakespeare than that, as I've just about reached the extent of my repertoire in that regard. But I want to ask you, how important is a name? How important is your name? Do you like your name? Most people do. Okay, there are the occasions when we hear of a newborn and we hear of what their parents, in their wisdom, have chosen to call the poor child. We sympathise at the scars it will undoubtedly leave in later life. Now, I'm not going to mention any examples of such names, as inevitably I'd end up finding that there is actually a Fifi Trixabel visiting here for the first time this morning. In which case, Fifi, wherever you are, you're most welcome, and I'm sorry. A name can be powerful. There are many names that can evoke strong reactions, both good and bad. And it's true for people, for political movements, for sports teams, good and bad. Barcelona and Manchester United. It's very obvious which is which. But it's also true in the commercial world as well, where companies seek to get a name that will have brand recognition, market saturation and good associations. Some people live their lives according to overpriced, overhyped technology that's simply named after a fruit. Apple. Clever? Most definitely, at least on the part of the marketers. But there are many names today clamouring for our attention, our allegiance, our time and our money. And this morning we're going to look at the name above all names. We're going to look at the name of Jesus and the central teaching is a rather dogmatic stark, black-and-white statement that can actually seem very offensive in today's world. There is no other name by which we are saved. Full stop. So if you've got your Bibles, um, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 3, if you're using the Pew Bible, it'll be on page 1094. And we're going to read quite a bit. Uh, We're going to read Acts chapter 3 and a good part of Acts chapter 4 as well. So Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man, crippled from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. My brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old.
we're going to look at this amazing story from three perspectives. The disciples preaching no other name but the name of Jesus. The crippled man healed by faith in the name of Jesus. And the religious leaders refusing to bow to the name of Jesus. So firstly, the disciples. You know those TV stories that start with key events and then up comes the text three hours earlier or seven days earlier. Do you like that? Well, I hope so because that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to put on hold for a moment the incredible, miraculous healing of a man crippled from birth because there's actually something more important and more vital in today's passage that I think we need to cover first. Let's remember that a few short weeks ago, Peter and John were huddled in a locked room in Jerusalem in fear for their lives. At Pentecost, as we heard last Sunday evening, the Holy Spirit is poured out in power and they're transformed. And Peter's already preached at the greatest revival meeting ever known and seen thousands of people come to know Christ. And it just keeps going. Peter and John have healed this man and it seems as if every person in the temple is hearing about it faster than if it was released on Twitter. And they're all running from every corner to see this man walking and jumping. And seeing such a crowd, Peter feels another sermon coming on. And he really doesn't waste the opportunity. Good preaching, many of us learned in the preaching workshop, seeks to draw the listener in, connect with them, and then challenge them. Peter's the kind of guy that doesn't waste his time on cutting to the chase on challenge. Yes, he draws them in. He says, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness we had made this man walk? He asked the question that they're asking. How did this happen? And then next he connects with them. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. So he sought the common ground. So if you're speaking to a Jewish audience, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was a good place to start. But after two sentences of that, Peter gets into the challenge and he doesn't mince his words. Here he goes. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. Peter, in the boldness of the spirit, was not ashamed of the truth of the gospel. And he declared it fearlessly. And that the man who just weeks before, before a mere servant girl, disowned the name of Jesus, is now saying this before thousands of people in the heart of the temple. It's almost a greater miracle than the healing that has just occurred. Well, Peter then answers their original question, how did this happen? He says, by faith in the name of Jesus. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. And standing beside him, probably still jumping and leaping, is possibly one of the best sermon illustrations ever. In the person of a joyous soul, had just been healed from years of misery. And yes, this is amazing, the people might have thought. Yes, it was incredible. What a sight. But so what? Maybe you think that too. It's a great story. High drama, healing, crowds, powerful oratory. But so what? You killed the author of life, Peter has said, and God raised him from the dead. This is personal. And sadly, Peter's words are not only true for all those there that day. As Jesus' death on the cross was to bear the sins of many for all time, 
all of us here share that guilt too. Our sin caused the death of the author of life. Peter doesn't leave it there. Repent, he says, so that your sins may be wiped out. Admit your sin, turn from it, ask for forgiveness, and your sins will be wiped out, he says. And he tells them as we read how Jesus is the promised Savior, the Messiah, the one foretold in the prophets. Repent, turn from your sin, know forgiveness, know the refreshing of a new relationship with Jesus, and know the hope of waiting for his return. The healing of a crippled man is a testament to the healing power of a resurrected Jesus who paid the price for sin once for all and who rose from death to bring forgiveness and certain, sure, eternal hope to those who have faith in his name. Peter's kind of in the middle of his own essential word series. He's doing Samuel and then he's back to Abraham. And then, well, then the religious leaders and temple guards show up and close it all down. They were not happy with the fact that Peter seems to think that the whole story of the Bible points to Jesus, risen from death. And after the furore around Jesus' death, after the mayhem of Pentecost, their hearts must have sank when they heard the news. Two of Jesus' disciples have healed a crippled man and thousands are gathering in the temple for another revival meeting. Well, it was now evening. Several hours had passed from the healing and the disciples get dumped into jail to cool off while the authorities try to sort this out. And I love the almost addendum there is in chapter 4, verse 4. Peter and John might have been locked up, but it was too late. The message was out there. God's word had gone forth, and the number of men who believed, not including women and children, grew to about 5,000. Well, the next day, Peter and John are brought before the rulers, the elders, the teachers... Annas and Caiaphas were there and there's an awful feeling of deja vu about this. I'm sure Peter and John were reminded of Jesus' trial and they knew how that had ended up. Can you imagine how you would feel? Uneducated fishermen from rural Israel up before the highest Jewish authorities in the land. And the question goes out, by what power or what name did you do this? What a question. It's a good question. It's a fantastic question. But what do they do? Play it safe and try to get out alive so that they can be free to preach another day? Or seize the opportunity and preach for God's glory? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, just goes for it again. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And in case anyone is in any doubt, Peter lays out the dogmatic black and white truth in terms that no one can misunderstand. Chapter 4, verse 12, the key verse. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when the rulers try to silence them, they simply say that they cannot help speaking about what they've seen and heard. Jesus' name trumps all other authorities. It is above the name of Annas or Caiaphas. It is above the name of Caesar. Why as Christians are we not more like Peter and John? 
Okay, granted, as disciples who were personally instructed by Christ and as apostles given the task of bringing the church into existence and writing the rest of the Bible, there is something different there. But does it sound foreign to you? We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Truth be told, we often don't have much of a problem not speaking. I can do that all too well. Do I not believe what Peter and John have said? Of course I do. But do I really believe that only in Jesus can salvation be found? That apart from Jesus, people are lost. People are condemned. People are bound for eternal punishment. Do I truly believe that there is no other name under heaven by which any man, woman or child can be saved? Do I truly believe that apart from Jesus there is no hope? That the people I rub shoulders with on a daily basis who do not know Jesus are walking to their destruction? Why don't I tell them? Why am I so scared to do that? Perhaps sometimes subconsciously we put other names above the name of Jesus. I put my own name or my reputation, my pride, my desire to be well thought of. I put that above the name of Jesus. Or I put others' names above the name of Jesus. My friends, my family, my relationships. Or I put the name of comfort, success, popularity, money, possessions above the name of Jesus. And it seems so foolish because none of that can save. None of that will last. None of that will bring eternal hope. And it's not to say that these things are unimportant, but if we had the perspective of Peter and John, if we truly believe this, would it not change what we say and how we act, both now and at nine o'clock tomorrow morning? There's no hope anywhere else. We can't comfort ourselves that perhaps those around us will be saved in any other way by any other name. The clear, perhaps offensive truth, and perhaps this might sound shocking, but I say it with concerned sensitivity, is that no one on this earth, now or ever, will be saved through Allah or Muhammad. No one will be saved through Buddha. No one will be saved through spirituality. No one will be saved through humanism. Salvation is found in no one else. It is only found through faith in the name of Jesus. Let's go back to the start of the story and consider the crippled man. Let's think about things from his perspective for a moment. This man was crippled from birth and by spoiling Luke's masterful storytelling by skipping to the end, we know from chapter 422 that the man was over 40 years old. Now remember, this man was living in hard times. There was no welfare state. His parents were possibly dead, and he may have even been disowned by his family due to his disability because he couldn't help or contribute to support them. He had at least some assistance from people who would carry him to the temple gate each day so he could beg, but not good enough friends that they would care enough for him to really provide for him. Here he was at the gate of the temple, at the door to God's house in Israel amidst God's chosen people, amidst the people who God had repeatedly told to care for the poor and downtrodden. And each day he's begging for enough money 
to survive another 24 hours. Perhaps when younger he might have hoped and dreamed of being able to walk, to work, to live freely without depending on handouts from generous strangers. But I'm sure as 40 years wound round, he may have long forgotten such notions. His daily life was that of survival. Get enough money to eat enough food to live another day and then do it all over again. As he sat at the temple gate that afternoon, could he even have imagined what was just about to happen? He knew his life was pretty hopeless. He knew he needed help. And as Peter and John came to the temple, he did his thing. He asked them for money. And as far as he was concerned, that was the thing he needed. That was the only solution to his problems. That was the only thing that could bring comfort to his life. Many people, I'm sure, walked past ignoring him. So to find two men who stopped and spoke to him, it got his attention. And he was probably wondering how much money he might get. The next words out of Peter's mouth must have been rather disappointing. Silver or gold? I do not have. I can imagine him shaking his head and wishing they would stop talking and move on and make room for the next person with something real to give. I'm not someone who likes to over-allegorize or stretch applications, but I think there are similarities we can draw to many lives today. There are many people today who may not be physically disabled, but who are crippled with the disappointments, the knockdowns, the crushing defeats, the relentless struggle of modern life. People who, after many years, have perhaps given up on whatever dreams they may have cherished and settled for just plain surviving, making it from one day to the next. Is that you? Like the beggar, are you seeking that which you think will bring some comfort, that which will make your life a bit easier? Money, a particular relationship, comfort, success, popularity, seeking after many of the different names and brands that our society offers, hoping that what you seek might bring you the happiness and fulfillment you desire. Well, back to our crippled beggar. In a few short seconds, he was going to go from disappointment at no money, to forgetting completely about silver and gold. His life was about to be turned upside down, and it sounds so simple in the story. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Peter reaches out his hand and helped him up. And the man is healed instantly. And perhaps we can miss the full extent of this miracle. Were it only that the physical problem that prevented him from walking was cured, this man would still not be able to stand, let alone walk or jump. He had never walked. And we've all seen toddlers learning to walk. It's precarious and it takes time. And many of us have seen people recover from being bedbound from a long illness. It can take weeks to get back on your feet. But in one instant, the healing power of Jesus Christ has restored this man's physical function and miraculously, for the first time ever being on his own two feet, he can walk, he can run, he can jump, he can leap. And I can picture him jumping up and kicking over this beggar's cup with whatever few coins there might have been in it. Who cares about loose change? He was going into the temple with Peter and John. And he was praising God all the way. And we're told that all who saw him recognized him as the crippled beggar. They'd no doubt seen him every day. And he's just danced right by them. People were filled with wonder and amazement. 
The power of Jesus had broken into this man's life almost when he had given up hope, when he couldn't even imagine or dream of what could happen to him, when all he longed for were a few coins, a hot meal, and seeing another sunrise. And if you've never known the power of Jesus in your life, if you're struggling along by yourself, if you're dealing with lost hopes and broken dreams, if you're wondering if you can make it through the days, and even if you do, you wonder what's the point and why you bother, if that's you, well then don't sell yourself short. Don't settle for what's second best by such a long way. Don't just hope for money, possessions, fame, fortune, friendship. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And perhaps like the beggar, you have come here today with no expectation or hope of your life being changed. But know that you can be changed. You can be saved. Peter has already told us what you must do. You must repent. You must acknowledge that you have sinned. That you've gone your own way apart from God. You must ask God to forgive you in Jesus' name, trusting in faith that Jesus' death and resurrection is for you, taking away your sins and bringing you new life, new hope, a new direction. Do you think that after the events of that day in the temple, the healed man would take a seat at the temple gate and shake his tin begging for money? No. Faith in the name of Jesus had changed his life. And that testimony to the power of Jesus' name can change you this very morning. Will you accept the offer of salvation? Finally and briefly, the religious leaders. Well, firstly, the actions of the religious leaders remind us of a truth that it would be wrong to overlook. When we stand up for Jesus, when we tell of what we've seen and heard, when we own his name above all names... We can attract persecution, attacks from the world and the devil. But again, for the Christian, it comes down to which name has the highest place in our lives. And that's easy to say, but hard to live out in practice. When I thought about the religious leaders, it was almost more interesting what they didn't say. Why didn't they tell the disciples to stop talking about Jesus' resurrection because it didn't happen? The leaders knew the tomb was empty. The leaders knew that hundreds of people had testified to seeing the risen Christ. They may declare that they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they had no valid explanation for it. They weren't actually contesting the facts, but were seeking to suppress and ignore what was the truth. They put their tradition, their pride, and their understanding above the name of Jesus. And these leaders were almost dumbfounded. They were astonished at these unschooled fishermen who were boldly expounding the Old Testament and pointing it to Jesus. And look at the wonderful words in 4 verse 13. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. It was as if even they understood that the change in Peter and John had come from them being with Jesus. And in light of the undisputed healing of the crippled man, it says there was nothing they could say. They simply decided to refuse to accept that there is no other name but Jesus. What about you? 
you know the gospel. You know the story of Jesus. You may have heard it many times before. And perhaps you even at some level have acknowledgement that yes, you believe Jesus did die and rise from the dead. And in your head, you know this is true. Perhaps you actually do suspect that there is no other way apart from Jesus. But you keep turning away. You aren't prepared to give the name of Jesus the place that it demands in your life. In some ways, you're right. The old saying goes, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. It's all or nothing. If you're going to come to Jesus, you have to acknowledge that he is the Lord. You have to give your life to him. You have to admit that all you bring is sin, that he alone can save you. And you have to let him change your life, just like the healed man who wouldn't be returning to his spot at the temple gate. Can you imagine if the beggar had looked up at Peter and said, take your hand? No thanks. I just wanted your money. Don't turn your back on Jesus. There's no other name. There's no other way. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can spend the rest of your life looking for answers elsewhere. When faced with the teaching of Jesus, at one point some followers deserted him, and Jesus turned to the disciples and asked, You do not want to leave too, do you? And of course it's Peter who speaks up and answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can you go? There's no other name. As we finish, I want to ask myself and each person here, whether you're a Christian or not, which name has the highest place in your life? Is it Jesus? Or is it another? Your own name? Someone else? Is it a commercial name? Money? Success? Do you believe that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved? No other name but the name of Jesus. How will that change what you do and say as you leave this place today, as you go to your homes, to your workplaces tomorrow, or your place of study? Will you speak of what you have seen and heard? Will people notice that Jesus' name takes the highest place in your life? My prayer is that when people look at us, like the religious leaders, they would be astonished and take note that these people, us, Windsor Baptist, had been with Jesus.